Radio advertising is good. Why should you advertise on the Tan Talk Radio Network, AM 1340? Well, it's simple. We are a local radio station with local shows that target our local communities and local listeners. We have a variety of shows that cover a multitude of informative and interesting topics, such as automotive and boating, real estate and finance, health and medical, politics and law, sports and fishing, pet care, and more. Why, we are even home to Imus in the Morning. We also have shows about comedy, food and dining, religion, fashion, local community events and activities and a variety of music. Talk radio provides a listening format that appeals to a large cross-section of people. Whether you are in your car, at work, at home, everyone has a radio. And we are streamed live on the Internet. And past shows are podcasted so you, the listener, can play back your favorite shows over and over again. The possibilities are endless. So that, my listeners, is why you should advertise on the Tam Talk Radio Network, AM 1340. Listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Let me tell you about my company, Gulfstream Motorsports, Inc. 727-541-1741. I have over 35 years' experience with classic, vintage, sport, and racing cars. I do appraisals, consulting, and pre-purchase inspections. Before you buy your next rare classic, the car of your dreams, give me a call at Gulfstream Motorsports, Inc. 727-541-1741. Also, due to my 28 years' experience in the auto salvage business, I am very good with wrecks. So if your car has been in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call me at 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for lost value of your repaired vehicle. That's Gulfstream Motorsports, Inc., 727-541-1741. And be sure to tune in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, Wednesdays, 7 to 8 p.m. on the Tantalk Radio Network, AM 1340. If you like golf, enjoy affordable golf at Magnolia Valley Golf Club, located on Massachusetts Avenue in Newport Ritchie. Play for as little as $15 after 2 p.m. The club has two beautiful courses to choose from, an 18-hole championship par 72 plus another nine-hole executive par 33. Join their open leagues on Wednesday afternoons at 4 and Sunday mornings at 8. Call 727-847-2342 for tee times or visit their website, magnoliavalleygolfclub.com. Wherever wheels are turning, no matter what the load, the name that's known is Firestone. The rubber meets the road. If you're carrying steel or tilling the soil, gonna visit grandma or looking for oil. For the youngest driver and the real old pro, for jet to land or a lawn to mow, for moving mountains or for stocking geese, following a golf ball or keeping the peace. Wherever wheels are turning, no matter what the load. The name that's known is Firestone, where the rubber meets the road. Firestone, your symbol of quality and service. This is the Los Angeles Times Grand Prix, a star-studded field in an array of legal horsepower rarely seen in American road racing. If you thought last year's Times Grand Prix was a barn burner, brother, hold your hand. The entry list included Jimmy Clark, world champion and Indy 500 winner in a Lotus 40. Former world champion Graham Hill of England in a McLaren Oldsmobile. Indianapolis winner and defending champion in this race, Parnelli Jones in a Lola Chevrolet. 
Bruce McLaren of New Zealand, whose name graces one of the world's great race car lines. Jim Hall of Texas in the radical Chevrolet-powered Chaparral. Mario Andretti, champion of the U.S. Ovals, destined for greatness in road racing. Up-and-coming star, Jackie Stewart, his Lola, powered by Chevrolet. Versatile Dan Gurney of California in a McLaren Ford. Walt Hanskin of New Jersey in a Lola Ford. And Mexican Grand Prix winner Richie Ginther in a Lotus 40. Now let's take a 1965 style onboard camera lap of Riverside with Skip Scott. Right now we're coming onto the start finish line into a very fast left uphill turn. Brake slightly, back on the power, and ease her on around over. A few little bumps in there make it a little tricky. Down a short straight into a fast right. And now down approaching into the S's. Tune in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your host, Robert. And we got another great show for you tonight. We got some cool music, and we got some cool clips. I'm sure you guys enjoyed that uh, last little clip from the 1965 Riverside uh, event. And we also had two of the people that were mentioned in that, two of the drivers, which was Mario Andretti and Dan Gurney, had been on the show. But there was also a third driver. That's more than one. But one of the other drivers that's mentioned in that will be our guest this evening, okay? So uh, you guys stay tuned, and hey... I'm your announcer, Robert. It's time to welcome Chris to the radio show. Chris, how are you doing? Tell us about Crown Collector Car Auction. How are you, Robert? <laughs> and thanks for having me on the show again. Yeah, and, very good. And boy, I'm glad to be here. I'm, I love talking about our upcoming auction at the fairgrounds in Tampa this October 14th and 15th. We're going to have a great auction. It's loaded with great American and European muscle classic antique and collectible cars and uh, i always talk about all these great cars that we're getting very high price totally restored concord condition cars well this week we're going to prove that we're going to have cars for everyone that comes to the fairgrounds this october 14th and 15th i can signed a 1981 firebird and while that doesn't sound very exciting they made about 50,000 Trans Ams that year out of the 70,000 Firebirds they made, but only 502 were made as Firebird formulas with four-speed, 
air conditioning, the WS6 package, four-wheel disc brakes, and the turbo wheels. And this car has only 21,000 original miles, is in absolutely perfect showroom condition, original paint, original interior. It shows like a brand-new car, and it's going to be offered at no reserve. The highest price bid is going to get that car, and it's a great entry-level collectible that somebody could buy and, and have fun with, go to the local shows with, or put away and, and make money in the future because that car is going to become the real valuable collector car of the future only 502 made wow now that car is basically is is that the one that you tell me about too it was also featured in a magazine tell us a little bit about that yes it was it was featured in uh, 2009 in pontiac excellence it, uh, at that time it only had 15,000 miles on it the the person who bought it uh got it from the original owner it has the original build sheet the original window sticker, all the original books and records, and it was a feature in that magazine that the month of December in 2009. And, of course, we have a copy of the magazine that also goes with the car. Very good. So now, you're basically, you're going ahead, and you have, you've held to your, your guns here. You've done nothing but find really, really good quality cars. So this is going to be a real good auction. This is going to be a typical... You know, cut rate kind of... You're going for really, really high-quality cars, high-caliber cars. Right. Every car that crosses the block, no matter what it is, whether it's a Volkswagen Beater, a a Beetle, Beetle. (laughs) we won't have any Beaters. It's going to be a quality example of that car. Okay. We, We are only consigning great cars, no matter what the vintage, whatever the make, model, it has to be a great example of that car. Super. Now, you also... Uh, consigned a Healy. Tell us a little bit about the Healy. Yes, I have consigned a 1956 100M, uh, which was a vintage race car from the day it was manufactured, and it has loads of uh, SCCA racing history, logbooks and and history, and it's been owned by the same family since 1957. Wow. Okay, so there's a 106, which is basically, there's a 104, excuse me. So it's a 104, which is a four-cylinder car, but the M version was the race version. That's correct. Okay, so he has, you have history since day one. It was a race car since day one. Now, where did the car come from? Is this car from California or East Coast, West Coast? Where is it from? You know, I'm not really sure about exactly where it spent most of its life, but it's right here in Florida. The family that owns it does live here in Florida. It was originally in Texas, I think, for most of its life. Okay. But it was campaigned in California f- for a long time. For a long time. Okay, well, that's good. Now, you know, we're talking about vintage race cars. And I know I'm kind of partial to road racing, and I know we will get into some other cars in the future. But the thing about vintage race cars are there's a huge sport. It is very popular. It's starting to get more and more advertising, more and more sponsors, more and more TV time, which is really, really good. Now, this particular car, too, has got a extensive history. Now, the condition of this car, is this fairly much in its original race configuration? It actually is in its entire original race configuration, and it's in remarkably great condition. Okay. Uh, it is a running and driving and ready-to-go car. Race-ready car. Race-ready. Super. Uh, yeah, it's it's really a fine to have for the auction, and we're really happy. So everybody out there, go on to www.crowncollectorcars.com and check it out. Or you could give me a call at 855-552-7696 and learn all about the auction and how you can consign your car to the auction or how you could register to bid and buy one of these wonderful cars that we're going to offer. We also consigned a 2011 Ford Mustang Retractable, the grabber blue one that belongs to uh, our friend Hank. That's correct. And that car will be on display. It will be for sale. 
And also, we can sign. You can sign his uh, 1968 Cougar GTE 427, one of 330 some odd made. Right, and that that car is so rare, and it's in such meticulous condition that uh, people are going to just be drooling all over. We're going to have to have the team out there wiping it off constantly. So basically, we're going. Hey, how's the Cadillac doing? Did you get that? You get that car consigned, right? Absolutely. The 41, the 41 Cadillac four door convertible, which is a concourse condition 100 point car, is is really going to be one of the stars of the show. Okay. Hey, fire up that uh, CD or that uh, old vintage record or tape reel or whatever we got. Let's hear that first song. All right. And we're going to play some Hank Williams Jr. Oh, yeah. Oh, hey, Cedric. Welcome to the show. Forgot about you there. Hi, guys. (laughs) That's it for you. The preacher man says it's the end of time. And the Mississippi River, she's a gold grind. Is up and the stock market's down And you're only getting mugged if you go downtown I live back in the woods, you see A woman and the kids and the dogs and me I got a shotgun, a rifle, and a four-wheel drive And a country boy can survive Country folks can survive I can plow a field all day long I can catch catfish from dusk till dawn Make our own whiskey and our own smoke too Ain't too many things these old boys can't do And homemade wine And country boy can survive Country folks can survive Because you can't stop us out And you can't make a run Those wooden and moan boys Raised on shotguns We say grace We say ma'am If you ain't into that We don't give a damn From the West Virginia coal mines and the Rocky Mountains and the Western skies. And we can skin a buck, we can run a trot line, and a country boy can survive. He never called me by my name, just Billy. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on Westway Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friends, Corey, Jed, and Kurt at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 600 West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. 
Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radiant Cars. I'd like to tell you about a great place to eat right on the main part of Clearwater Beach. Located at 333 South Gulfview Boulevard. Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill has two floors of food, drink, and fun. They have daily specials, happy hour, and nightly entertainment. Their menu caters to seafood lovers as well as land lovers. Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill, 727-608-2065. They're open in the morning for breakfast until 1 a.m. So stop by and visit my friends, Turtle, Eddie, and Polly, and all the girls and staff at Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill. That's 727-608-2065. Mention Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and you never know, you might get a free drink. That's Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill on Clearwater Beach, 727-608-2065. Classic, timeless, and collectible cars. Crown Collector Car Auctions presents the Florida Fall Classic. October 14th and 15th at the Florida State Fairgrounds in Tampa. Broadcast live on the Internet to buyers around the world. Space is limited, so reserve your spot in the greatest collector car auction in Florida this fall. Visit crowncollectorcars.com or call 855-552-7696. That's 855-552-7696 and consign your car today. Okay, we're back. In case you just tuned in, this is Robert. My name's Robert. I'm your host. And I got Chris sitting in with me from uh, Crown Collector Car Auction. Hi, Robert. And, of course, Cedric is our production guy this evening. Hi, production our production dude. dude. And, of course, we got uh, Sherry sitting over in the corner, but you guys can't see her, so I'll say hi to Sherry because she's just sitting there watching. And she has a show that comes on a little bit later, and it's called, what is it called? One Voice. One Voice. So be sure and tune into that a little bit later. She's got some really good spooky stuff going on. Anyway, hey, don't forget, every Saturday night at Sneaky Pete's Scoops and Subs down at St. Pete at 5507 38th Avenue North, there's a car show from 5 to 9, okay? Give them a call down there, 343-3030, 343-3030, okay? Hey, I just got to say something, too, because yesterday I had to run to uh, the guys down at Aeros, something or other, God, I can't believe I can't remember that, Aerospace uh, Technology. I think they're the guy that makes that really cool, uh, the aluminum, the, the aftermarket brake setups for some of the cars. I should know better. But anyway, they're down behind Tyrone Mall, behind uh, Vet Brakes down there. And I had to stop. I was hungry. I had the munchies. So I stopped at at Sneaky Pete's. And boy, I tell you what, not only is he making, he's got some great hamburgers and, and hot dogs and subs, but he made a mean stroganoff. I think that's what it was. Wow. Actually, what he's doing, I mean, he's got some, you know, he likes, to, it's kind of a hobby that kind of got out of control. You know, like our car business. Right. It's a hobby that got out of control. So <laughs> next time we're down there, Chris, we'll have to check it out. But his Absolutely. car show. Is Saturdays from 5 to 9. Okay, hey, what do we got? Let's go fire up that other little song. Chris, you want to say anything else? What are, any other car, cool cars you could run across here lately? Oh, we've run across a bunch of cool cars. We're getting a 1919 Ford Depot hack that's been sitting in an auto parts store for the last 60 years as their display, and that's going to run at no reserve. It has kerosene lights. You have to light them up. What's and a depot hack? A depot hack is a very big truck-like looking vehicle that has all seats in it. Mm-hmm. It's a wood body, and uh, of course, it's 1919. It's crank, and uh, it it was used to go from the train stations to like a taxi cab to bring oh. people in their luggage home after they got off the train at the depot. Cool beans. Hey, you got our guest on her? Okay, good. Let's go ahead and when he listens, we'll listen. Let's play, play a special clip for him. Smoke 
in the mud and the blood we walked behind Robert E. Lee. The sixty miles from Richmond to face the Union Army. We dug our holes and we built a wall cause we knew there'd be a fight. If the blue coat wearing soldiers crossed the river that night. Sure as hell at sundown came a hundred thousand men And it sure did shock me, Lord, to see Ken killing Ken The cannonballs were heavy, filled with iron and steel and lead And the James River water ran a bloody red As I look around I see a mighty city Where there once was a battleground I thought when they surrendered We would fight no more But the ghost of Lee can still see us Fight the Civil War We insured were stolen. If they're not recovered within 30 days, we stand to lose $150,000. I read about that. J.C.'s car was on Ascot, wasn't it? Yes. But here's the clincher. Last night, someone stole Parnelli Jones' big Ole Bronco, which we insure for $100,000. And if it's not recovered within 15 days before the race, we stand to lose a quarter of a million. I bet the odds against that are 1 in 10,000. 1 in 22,000. I'll bet underwriting is just delighted. Oh, yes. Mr. Jones can see you now. Thank you. Well, I see you. Yeah, see you later, Bob. Okay, bye, Lisa. Let's look at anything, Lisa. Mr. Jones, I'm Frank Aquino from your insurance company, and I talked to you earlier. This is Mr. Madrian Pace from Chase Research. Pleasure. I understand if uh, uh, anybody can find my Bronco, you can. Thank you. What can you tell us about the theft? We definitely think it was done by uh, professionals. Uh, the police uh, just couldn't find anything. And Are you sure it was stolen? I mean, not just misplaced or left in one of the trucks or something? No, I'm sure that it uh, wasn't uh, misplaced. Is this a picture of it here on the wall? Yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, that was taken last year down in Mexico. Can we see the area where the Bronco was stolen? Sure, right this way. Well, they definitely couldn't drive it or put it on the street or anything like that. Well, it is one of a kind and... Uh... I'd really like to have it back. Well, we'll do everything we can to get it back for you, Parnelli. Tell me, uh, Frank, does your company have an insurance policy on these two? Yes, that's the other company. The two is $8 million. No wonder I don't get any sleep. Oh, it isn't that bad, Frank. It's all your imagination. You shouldn't let little things like that bother you. Right here's where the uh, Bronco was uh, stolen from. Well, it's definitely not there now. Excuse me, Parnelli, but Jim Cook is on the line. Okay, I'll just take it down here. Okay. Excuse me, gentlemen, but... Uh, 
Just give my Bronco back. Well, we can't find it. Frank's company just have to pay your $350,000. Well, I'd rather have my Bronco back. We'll do our best. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, you are tuned into Nostalgic Radio Cars, and it is time to introduce our guest for the evening, okay? You probably figured out the clues, because I gave you a couple clues earlier in the show, and of course this one most recently. But let me tell you about this gentleman. He's had an, he's had an amazing racing career. He's won in Indy cars, he's won in Sprint cars, he's run in Midget cars, Stock cars, Sports cars, even the Baja, referencing the uh, Bronco here. And he's even done some Pike Peak racing. So without further ado, I would like to welcome Parnelli Jones to the radio show. Parnelli, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. How are you doing? Pretty good. How are you? Okay, good. Did you uh, catch that little clip we played for you? Oh, yeah, yeah. I forgot all about that. that was a clip in uh, Gone in 60 Seconds. <laughs> yeah. And- I did another movie shortly after that, and it was gone in 30. <laughs> it was gone in 30. Okay. Well, anyway, so tell us a little bit about uh, Parnelli Jones and how you got started in the uh, racing field. Now you- well, it, uh, you know, <clears throat> when I turned 16, I had a horse, and I sold my horse and bought a hot rod. And it was pretty radical, and uh, I had to work in the garage after school to keep it running and... Uh, Anyway, uh, in doing so, my cousin uh, tore, took his old 34 Ford and made a jalopy out of it. Because I was working in the garage, uh, uh, keeping the cleaning parts and stuff, he thought I had enough mechanical knowledge that I ought to help him, which I did. He used to let me warm the car up. And uh, that was pretty exciting for me, open exhaust and rough ride and all that. and Kind of got the hook right off the bat. And then, uh, now, you tell us a little bit of a story, too. You were, there was a little story you were telling me yesterday about you, the jalopy in a junkyard, and a police officer. So tell us that story, because I know that brings a chuckle to you still when you tell that one. But, uh, I don't know. It must have been a lie. No, it must have been a lie. <laughs> I don't, I'm trying to recall what you're talking about. Oh, remember the story about you in a jalopy and you got pulled over by the police officer when you were working at the junkyard? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I was working in uh, in a junkyard cutting up uh, cars and stuff like that, and I had this old... Uh, Hot rod, not the same car, but uh, anyway, it was a, you know, didn't have anything on it. Didn't have no rear view mirror. Didn't have no emergency brake. It didn't have tail lights or anything else. And and so anyway, I was got in the car because they had a, a water tank there and a 55 gallon drum, and that's how we put out the fire. Other than that, we had no water, especially no drinking water. So I had to go down the street about a block to. Uh, to get some drinking water, so I jumped in this old uh, car and went down the street, and it's sitting out in the middle of the road, so to speak, or next to the road, and while I was getting a drink, and a motorcycle officer pulled up, pulls out his ticket book and starts to write me a ticket, and I said, uh, hey, wait a minute, what, you know, he says, uh, I said, he says, I don't know where to start, and I said, well, let me tell you, I'll, I'll take this down there to that wrecking yard, and I'll take a torch and cut it in half if you won't write me a ticket. So he thought that was a good idea, so he followed me down back to the wrecking yard, and I pulled it inside, and I knew, and I thought, oh, my God, if I cut it in half, I don't have any registration on it. You know, they, they, that'd be against the law as well. So I said, what if I just hold my foot to the floor and till the engine blows up, and uh, that way you know I won't be driving it. He laughed, and he thought that was a good idea. So I held it down to the floor, and it went run pretty hard for a little while, and all of a sudden it let out a poof and a 
you know, it sounded kind of like it blew up, you know. And so anyway, the officer just jumped up and down laughing. And he laughed. And so anyway, I went back to work. And later that afternoon, I thought, well, I'm going to go see what happened over there and see if there's a hole in the side of it or whatever. And went over there and saw a plug. It just vibrated out of the carburetor. And it dumped fuel on the exhaust and made kind of an explosion effect. And so I put the plug back in, got in the car, hit the starter, and it fired right up. <laughs> <laughs> Little of the cop, though. Yeah. So good days and bad days. <laughs> there you go. Now, you got into uh, racing. You were doing uh, what basically like uh, just like rounding around dirt track racing. Is that how you got started pretty much? Yeah, well, the first uh, jalopy races were on. Uh, you know, B courses and uh, also quarter-mile dirt tracks. Uh, we did occasionally run on different courses other than that, but most of the stuff was dirt, you know. And then when did, when did you start getting a little bit more into the professional aspect of it? How did when, What year did, was that? Did that take, pl- take yeah. place? Well, about in the early, early 50s, uh, uh, I, I, what I did is uh, I... I later, you know, started, uh, I had, actually, the first uh, car that I had, I didn't do very well, and only ran a few races and blew the engine up and and didn't get an opportunity to continue, and so my buddy that I was in partners with, he got drafted in the service, so later, two years when he got out, uh, we decided, went to the races and watched the jalopy races again, and so we decided we'd uh, build another car, well... I had just enough uh, experience, you know, from the first uh, time that I thought I ought to win every race. And after wrecking my car week after week, I had all this desire and no talent. And uh, anyway, I blew the engine up and didn't have enough to fix it. But some guy came to me and he said, uh, look, I'll build an engine for your car if you'll just listen to me. And he must have seen my desire and uh, was so great. And he... uh, said look just slow down and quit uh you know quit trying to win the race in the first corner anyway he built me an engine his engine run better than mine and i slowed down and listened to him and right off the bat i started winning races and just took off from there and then so it was the, after the jalopies is that when you kind of got into sprint cars and midget cars because you're still running on dirt well, tracks what right? happened i was winning a lot of the jalopy races and so when you do that uh you know guys that own midgets and sprint cars say, hey, you want to come and drive my midget, or you want to come out and drive my sprint car? And, and you know, the very first year I jumped in a midget and finished second in the championship and won some races. And then the sprint car I uh, wound up driving for uh, bike plumbing. At first I ran a few cars that uh, I didn't win with, and and then finally I got this ride with uh, the bike car, which was a good sprint car, and Right away, I started winning races and that, and then I went to, uh, later built a new car and went back east. Obviously, went and ran IMC in 1959, and uh, about cured me from racing and running all them dirt tracks. Although I did win some races, but anyway, then uh, I joined USAC in 1960 and uh, won the Midwest Sprint Car Championship. Come back and won the national two years in a row after that. Of course, by then, uh, and I also was running, you know, stock cars and stuff like that on the West Coast and NASCAR. Actually, came out of NASCAR before I went to IndyCar racing. But anyway, uh, 
you know, people were starting to talk about me, and I could have went to India even before I did, maybe a year or two, but I wanted to make sure when I went to India that I had a good car and a good opportunity for myself. And, and of course, I was fortunate uh, to lead the race for 27 laps and was rookie of the year, co-rookie with Bobby Marshman. That was in 1961, correct? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, 1961. And then 62, you won a, didn't you, was 62 the first year won in any race? No, in 62, I sat on the pole. I was the first to run 150 miles an hour average around Indy. Okay. And uh, anyway, I was started the race and was long gone. I really should have won that race hands down. I had almost, Roger Ward wound up winning a race, and I almost lapped him before. I lost the brakes and brains, too. Anyway, <laughs> I wound up, wound up making two pit stops without any brakes because actually when I was leading, I was collecting $150 a lap. So I stayed out there until the uh, tire, the right rear tire ran into the cord and ran a couple laps on the cord and figured, well, that's it. So when I went across the start-finish line, I started slowing down and came in, and before I could tell them I didn't want to run, they grabbed the car and stopped it. And before I could tell them I didn't want to run anymore, they, uh, they uh, put on three tires and fueled it and and uh, hit the air jacks. So uh, I thought, well, maybe I better go out there and make a decision. So I went back out and made a decision if I wanted to keep on running. So I thought if I stay out of everybody's way, I could manage to finish. And I did wind up finishing, but I had to make one more stop. And I came in a little bit faster, and they couldn't quite stop it. I ran over my tires there and rubbed it up against the wall. They grabbed it and put it back and put the tires on and I wanted to finish but uh, that was a heartbreaker that one and then I come back in 63 and the same car basically and won the race uh, set on the pole again and new track record and won the race now those which car the car you were racing back then was powered by what what type of car was it uh, it was a four cylinder Offenhauser engine yeah okay and those cars were capable of what speeds around 150 miles an hour back in those days that was about it yeah well, the, the biggest handicap we had was the tires, and the tires, mm-hmm. tires were skinny, and the drivers were fat. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> the tires are fat, and the drivers are skinny. But uh, it, uh, it, it, you know, it was handicapped. Without, you know, in cars today, I mean, have all the, you know, downforce and electronics, aerodynamics, and all that stuff, and we didn't have those things in those days. Tell us about the 1967 season when uh, you were driving for Andy Granatelli and uh, STP, and you were driving the turbine car. Yeah, I uh, actually I uh, really had uh, mixed emotions about that when when I uh, Andy had asked me to drive the the car, and uh, anyway, I had a lot of fun that month though because uh, Andy paid me a lot of money to drive it, and. Uh, Anyway, so I didn't realize it was going to be as good as it was. But when when I got back there, uh, I wasn't bad, but I wasn't really good, and I wanted to qualify in sixth, uh, second row outside. And and the, the six years that I was there before that, uh, I was always in the top five. And uh, anyway, but everybody was uh, accusing me of sandbagging, and the reason they were, because during uh, practice. Uh, uh, these guys were running uh, real light loads of fuel, and 
and running 10, 15% nitro with their methanol. And this turbine car, when you get it spooled up, uh, obviously it had uh, it had about a three-second throttle delay time. So brakes were you really your best friend because the only way you could slow it down is really using the brakes. But anyway, this thing would accelerate uh, across the short straightaways and out onto the long straightaways about halfway down. It would quit accelerating, and uh, uh, these guys were driving back by me with their light loads of fuel and nitro. And uh, knowing what was going to happen on race day, I knew when they put on 75 gallons of fuel and then had to get the mileage that they did, they'd have to run on straight methanol and couldn't run the nitro, that they probably wouldn't be able to get back by me. And basically that's what, what happened. But... During this sandbagging thing that they were accusing me of, what happened was because they'd drive by me, they, uh, you know, the newspaper picked it up right away, and the press and everybody was saying, oh, he's sandbagging, blah, you know, and people started sending me sandbags in the mail. <laughs> and so I was having a lot of fun with it because I knew race day what that I would probably have a better chance. And anyway, so I was riddling these guys and saying, you know, well, uh, tell me where, how fast you guys are going to run on race day because I want to know where to set the screw. <laughs> so, so anyway, I had a lot of fun with it. And then I started second row outside, and, and, um, and nobody gave the car any real credit for how well it handled. And I just stuck it up around the gray in the corner and passed everybody as best the front row on the outside. And perfect timing, I caught uh, Mario. He was leading, and he was on the pole. And I caught him coming out of turn two and went by underneath him coming off the corner. And uh, he gave me the one-lap sign. And <laughs> I, was, I was long gone and uh, really dominated the race. And I kicked myself in the rear for uh, hustling it too hard out of the pits because basically... That's what put me out with about three and a half laps to go, and I had almost a lap lead. So, do you uh, feel if that car had of had won, do you think that could have significantly significantly changed IndyCar a little bit? That 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 type of an engine could no, have not, no, not really, not really. I think for why would you, first of all why would you uh, negotiate uh, your 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 fraternity so to speak out of business? I got you. In other words, why suddenly you would have white-collar uh, people from Pratt Whitney and Rolls-Royce and different companies. You wouldn't have the way the mechanic and and the American way. I got However, you. I don't think that uh, I don't think in the long run they would be good for racing. Mm-hmm. But uh, but now, so was that an experimental car that uh, that they were playing with? Oh, was definitely. That? Okay, it definitely was. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was uh, definitely. I mean. Uh, you know, I had no idea that it was going to be as good as it was in, in uh, race day. And, I mean, in qualifying, it wasn't all that great. I mean, uh, we were in 68, we ran turbines again. You know, I, I didn't drive, but we almost won the race with uh, Joe Leonard in the 68 turbine, which is a better, maybe a, a better car, you know, better setup. And... Uh, it, uh, it, they were managed to set the pole, but they were able, even though they put a restriction on the turbine on the air intake stuff, they uh, they were able to turn the boost up a little more and 
get a little more power out of it. So they sat on the pole, and we led that race uh, because I was working on the car. We we led that race until about 12 laps ago and had a yellow flag, and Andy Granatelli, who owned the car, he made a deal with Standard Oil to run uh, gasoline instead of the jet fuel. And on the yellow flag, the thing froze up the fuel pump drive because it didn't have enough lubricant in it. Hmm. Now, let's go to 19, let's see, was it 1968 that you started in, 67, 68, you started in Trans Am Racing? Of course, Trans Am Racing is my favorite. But, well, uh, after the uh, 1967 race, I kind of made a commitment to, you know, my business was taken off the ground, and and I was thinking toward the end of the race uh, that I, uh, uh, you know, winning again might not be as great as it was the first time. But anyway, it helped me make a decision that if my business was taken off the ground, and I could see that was my financial future, that I'd made a decision to quit running open cockpit cars. Okay. And just run, you know, stock cars, Trans Am and Baja and things that had a roof over my head. But anyway, uh, I got into the Trans Am. Uh, uh, you know, Donahue and Penske were winning all the races over there. And I guess Ford wanted to... Uh, uh, help put out some of the fire over there, so <laughs> hired Gurney and I to do uh, the Mercury Cougars. Anyway, the very first year we almost won the championship, but they uh, uh, we I, we got beat out by a, just a few points, and then we came back and and uh, in 1969 and uh, with Ford because Ford at that time said. Why would we be having Mercury fighting Ford, which is all coming out of the same pocket, so to speak? Anyway, uh, we should have won the Trans Am Championship in 69, but Firestone uh, let us down a little bit. and didn't, hadn't, The tire that we had toward the end of the year was, was uh, it was, uh, it would go away. You know, in other words, you could qualify pretty quick with it. But it would lose a tremendous amount after a lap or two, and and so it kind of it didn't have adhesion. Out of business that way, yeah. We almost won the championship anyway. Then we come back in '70 with a new uh, new tire and car and dominated the '70 season pretty well. I won five of the twelve races, and I think George won a couple of them. Now, also, you did uh, some before the Trans Am. I forgot. Well, you did uh, some stock car racing in the early '60s too, and that you were doing that with uh, Bill Strope over there on the on the West Coast, right? And you were running Mercury's. Well, actually, actually, uh, I drove for Bell, my partner, out okay. here on the West Coast in early my early stock car days, and in the '56 Ford, '57, '58, and then uh, when I went back east uh, uh, in 1964. Uh, uh, USAC, you know, of course, USAC used to have a stock car division as big as NASCAR at, at that time. Anyway, I won the stock car championship in 1964 uh, for Strop. And and that's basically how I got into off-road racing because Strop hounded me uh, to drive one of his Broncos. And, and I didn't. I told him no, and he told me I wasn't man enough. So that was like throwing a red flag. <laughs> so I... <laughs> Anyway, I did, and I found out I enjoyed it a great deal, and I was glad that he had coaxed me into doing that. Now, tell us that now, when you first went out and you raced the Bronco, the first Bronco you had, was it four-wheel drive? 
Yeah, it was a four-wheel drive, and it just was, uh, you know, it had a heavy front end on it, and, and uh, I uh, I just couldn't uh, keep it together, and obviously I tore it up the very first race, and and then the uh, second race I didn't last very long, and so afterwards uh, they built a, he built a two-wheel drive Bronco, and uh, for Ford, and then Ford decided not to do anything with it. And I said, that's what I want for a race car. So then I won the Baja 500 with it. So then I knew what I wanted. So then I went back and with one of my buddies and mechanics that worked on my car. And and, uh, <clears throat> and we started making drawings on a piece of paper. And we built Big Ole, which we wound up winning Baja 1000 two years in a row. And also the 500 again and also the Mint 400. Now the name Big Ole that came because what Olympia was the it one had of the... Olympia beer sponsor was, yeah okay <laughs> and, uh, and I didn't tag it somebody else tagged it the Big Ole is that what it was okay anyway. now the uh, that car would, uh, how much preparation goes into running a Baja I mean it, that seems and... well there's a lot of preparation with the teams you know Strop had run several cars and uh, and you know they set up pits about every hundred miles. And, uh, you know, that was a 1,000 miles down there. And uh, the record was like 16 hours or something. And the first year I won, I did it in 14 hours and 59 minutes and beat the record by a long sight. So then that changed the whole, you know, way people built cars and done everything else, really. Now, for the for the Baja 1000, or those, those Baja races through the desert down there, was it— necessary to have four-wheel drive or was two-wheel drive adequate for the conditions well we run, you run so fast over this stuff that two-wheel drive was better than four-wheel okay four-wheel drive would be best if you know you just have so many more working parts to break mm-hmm. you know so what were some of the you know, it, go ahead i'm sorry and it's more weight on the front end of the car what are some of, like when you would go to these pit stops every hundred miles? What are some of the components that you had to switch out without any question? And what are some of the stuff that lasted for for quite a while? Obviously, tires and brakes. I mean, you you ate those up. But what other? No, you just uh, would, well, the brakes usually would last the whole way. But oh, they would. Uh, it was tires and and gas. That's about it. Interesting. And a drink of water. <laughs> and a drink of water. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Now you you also raced in Pikes Peak. Tell us a little bit about that. You did a couple well, of pikes. Well, I, uh, uh, I was kind of, kind of bored with his, what I am. Kind of a guy that likes to see what's on the other side of the hill. Mm-hmm. And Ford had called me and asked me if I would come out there and run Baja. And uh, anyway, so with a uh, with a Ford, and uh, so I I uh, I thought, well, I'm going to go do that because I like I said, I like to see what's on the other side of the hill. I went out there and uh, was a teammate to Curtis Turner, and Curtis wound up winning the race, and I finished third, I think, the very first year. And I, so anyway, the following year, Mercury, uh, when in '63, I guess it was, one or '63 or '64, anyway, wanted me to come out there and do uh, the Pikes Peak again with Dale. So I come back and won. Uh, won the hill because I had a little experience from the first year knowing the course a little bit. Had a 166 turns, you know, and learning the course was really difficult. And you almost needed to do it in race speed to to appreciate, uh, 
you know, how well you need to know the course. But anyway, I was uh, fortunate enough to win and uh, won two years in a row. And then uh, was I think I was leading the race, the one that's final race the, that year, but they had a little trouble with the clocks, and, and uh, so I didn't win, but I, I thought I did. Now, that's the you were running the Mercury's back then, right? So, yeah. so it was basically yeah. per, like a stock car is what it was. I mean, it was a full, yeah, full, well, they, full well, they car. were basically a stock car, different kind of setup for a hill. But now, running Pikes Peak, I the height is what twelve thousand feet? Is it all the way up there, or something like that? No, it's fourteen thousand one hundred and ten feet. <laughs> okay, in so many inches. Yeah. What well, I, I just you cannot. Start out, you start out at about I don't know what I think it's some around ten thousand or eleven thousand, twelve thousand, something like that. And uh, it's, uh, you know, each year it gets faster, though, because they, they're starting to pave it now. You know, and after this year, I think the whole thing will be paved. And I think it's going to be much more dangerous. But it uh, used to just be loose gravel uh, all the way up the hill. And and you had to use the whole road. But uh, I run real hard down through the trees when you got out of the tree line about halfway up. Uh, you had to be really careful at the top. I, I'd run hard down below and make sure I got to the top from the last half. Now, how scary was that? I mean, you, you know, you're because that's, well, that's. Do you even think about that as a drift? Side, you get scared. But, okay. You know, more actually, it was. Um, you know, it's probably the most dangerous race course I ever run. But you know, we never had any uh, driver fatalities. And part of the reason was for that was people having so much respect for it. Mm-hmm. Now, did, what kind of safety precautions did they take on, on a Pikes Peak event? I mean, as far well, as, they, you know, uh, Yeah, well, they only, you're making a single run by yourself, you know. Okay. And how wide's and, the track? How wide's the road? Not very wide. Not, not very, very wide? wide? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's wide enough, uh, you know, for cars to pass each other. You know, one way and the other, but I mean, not a heck of a lot more than that. So, have you ever? Was, go ahead. I'm sorry. I mean, it's probably thirty feet across, something like that. All right, so you can you slide in the car quite a bit then. So, oh, definitely, yeah. So, whole with, suspension you set up is completely different from what you'd run on pavement. So, with your flat track experience, did that came in pretty handy going up and up up Pike Peak, Pikes Peak, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, my dirt experience, obviously, yeah. but I had a lot of help with uh, Bobby Unser became, uh, you know, he had obviously won the hill many times, and he certainly uh, coaxed me a little bit when I first went there, you know, and and uh, and also uh, helped me in, in setting the car up. Okay. Um, now, in 1970, 71, or 71, 72, you actually, at that point, since you got out of racing, you basically were a team owner, and you uh, sponsored a couple, uh, or you 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 uh, had some, you fielded some Indy cars, right, or in the early 70s? Well, yeah, there? we, uh, well, what happened was uh, my partner, Val, he, uh, he, and uh, you know, he'd got into the racing, and, and uh, you know, he went with the Indy cars, he and I together. And uh, we, uh, you know, I said, look, we got to get in with, if we're going to win some races, we got to get in with all four feet. So we wound up buying a team with uh, that came with George Bignotti and Al Unser Sr., and they are with a company in, 
and that team was for sale, so we wound up buying the team and uh, took our knowledge and their knowledge and uh, became a pretty dominant force. In fact, we uh, won Indy in 70 and 71, won 53 Indy car races as a car owner, and uh, won the championship three years in a row And uh, with Al Unser, and they and and then later Mario Andretti. So we had uh, Al Hunter Sr. and and Al and and Mario and Joe and and we were uh, pretty dominant. They were calling us the super team. Super team. We yeah, but then until um, we were pretty dominant until you know we lost some of our subsidy and had to back off and. Uh, okay. Well, we're just. Uh, uh, Parnell, we're just about out of time, but I uh, sorry I wouldn't okay. get to cover everything. But I do want to thank you for coming on the radio show. And would you be willing to come okay. on again sometime? We can go to part two of Parnella Jones. All right. Would you be game to okay. do that? Okay. Well, anyway, I want to thank our guest this evening, Parnella Jones, the greatest American race driver, or one of the very one of the greatest American race car drivers. And uh, Chris, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Don't forget Crown Collector Car Auctions this October fourteenth and fifteenth. Right. Go ahead. Fifteenth at the fairgrounds in Tampa. Go to www.crowncollectorcars.com. Okay, well we're just about out of time. I think we got seconds to go. Tune in next week to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and everybody drive carefully and stay safe. And tune in next week. We'll see ya. Clearwater, Tampa, St. Petersburg, WDCF, Dade City, Zephyr Hills, and Wesley Chapel, and KLRG, Sheridan, Little Rock, Arkansas.